Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. Earthquakes aren't top of mind when it comes to things we worry about here in the Delaware Valley, but they do happen. And of course, in other parts of the country and the world, they are a significant concern. We wanted to talk about earthquakes. We wanted to talk about concerns about the big one. So for this conversation, we caught up with Dr. Nick Devatsis. He is an associate professor and chair of the Earth and Environmental Science Department at Temple University's College of Science and Technology. So I'm curious, is it true that we experience earthquakes every day, but they could be very, they're very small and we don't even even notice them. I think I heard that one time. Is that for the most part true? Yeah, there are earthquakes going on all the time in different parts of the world. Um, you know, earthquakes are not unlike in their effect on us, the way a large truck going by can cause that feeling of a rumbling that you feel in your body and has that low frequency content that we feel as physical movements. Um, a number of factors influence whether an earthquake is is felt. The further away from you it is, the obviously the less it's felt because that energy has to start at its sort of finite source and then it spreads out sort of like a, a growing sphere. And that same amount of energy is being spread out over a larger and larger expanding surface. And then some of the material it passes through uh, absorbs that energy through other processes that don't allow it to transmit. It might be like, for instance, some friction or heating. Um, so earthquakes are going on all the time, but these, these, the distance and then the properties of the rocket travels through and the fact that it has this expanding spread means that we're not always able to sense them. We're all familiar, I think, when we talk earthquakes, we talk Richter scale. Is there a level, a number uh, that an earthquake has to register for it to be perceptible to the general public? Yeah, so the the, the Richter scale, or if, if seismologists work with this, it's largely in terms of the amount of energy involved, uh, is a logarithmic scale. So um, there are very large jumps between the numbers because it's 10 to the power of something, okay? So for what we can sense, it has a lot to do with the kind of instruments we use. So there's something that seismologists talk about, which is the magnitude of completeness. And it is the smallest earthquake, a, a particular area because of its instruments can detect completely. Below that, we're going to get some if they're close enough or they have certain, they're in certain locations, uh, but we're not going to get all. Um, and in a lot of the world, that's around three, a magnitude of three and a half. Now, if you're working in a scientific experiment where you're really looking closely at some of these things, and particularly you can put instruments maybe in a borehole or a well close to the source where you're expecting the earthquake, you might sense negative threes, negative ones. So there's a theoretical lower limit because what an earthquake is, is a, is a slip. It's not really any different than the snap of my fingers. And what, what differentiates it in terms of whether you can hear it is the amount of energy, which is a function of the area that slips, how far it slips, and the stiffness of the material. So they can get super small, probably smaller than we could ever detect. But in practical terms, right, um, magnitude three is really what we're sort of good at detecting at the global scale, because it's about then when it starts to have societal impacts. 
I'll, I'll, I'll point out that there's one thing when we do real experiments where we take a rock that's about this, a little bit smaller than my fist and we put it in a, in a big press and we squeeze it, we can actually instrument it with little crystals that are just like little microphones. And we can detect what's called acoustic emissions, which are basically super tiny earthquakes that occur between essentially things the size of grains of, the, of sand that are touching each other and slipping by each other. Right, so it's, it's, a, it's a continuum of a process. And what we can detect really has mostly to do with how closely we're looking. So when we talk about a big earthquake, I think most of the focus in Hollywood and I think in the general public is on California, San Andreas Fault. Mm-hmm. Is that really the, the place we should be most concerned when we're thinking catastrophic? Yeah, well, so so there are a couple of things that I would I would say about that. So first to understand how we think about risk. So risk is equal to the probability of an occurrence times its consequence. Uh, A number of things impact that calculation. So the thing about California is it tends to have earthquakes close enough to the surface of that magnitude three range where we sense and feel them a lot. And we know because of the great San Francisco earthquake in 1906, that they can be destructive. And that was in California. And that was really the birth of earthquake, uh, earthquake geology and of seismology in the United States. We were, we were listening before then, even the ancient Chinese had uh, early forms of seismometers because earthquakes were important to their society. But it was really then when we started thinking about this deeply and scientifically, and we went out and made observations. And a lot of those early observations were in California. So that's like our focus, right? But there are other places in the world or specifically in the United States where there are other really significant hazards, but they happen less frequently and we don't feel, we're not as aware of them. So one of those is off the coast of Oregon and and Washington. There, uh, part of the Pacific plate is being thrust under the North American plate. And that's what actually gives rise to the volcanoes uh, like Mount St. Helens, which is there, and the whole range of the Cascade Mountains. That kind of a fault that thrusts under and it goes over at, under a small angle has a really huge surface area. And uh, that is pressing it together and actually helps resist the slip. And so it has the potential to store up a lot of compression in the earth as sort of like a stretching or elasticity that you'd see in a rubber band to the point at which it'll fail. And then it'll rupture this huge area. And remember, how much energy is involved has to do with this idea of the area that slips times how far it slips times how stiff or elastic the rock is. And so there's potential for very large magnitude nine earthquakes in that region. And we know those have happened before. Uh, we can see where you know peat bogs uh, have been uplifted or drowned um, in that area uh, in the past. So we, we that's called paleoseismology. So we, we can see that. And uh, it turns out the Japanese have been keeping really good tidal records for a long time. And we actually have the records of the arrival of tsunamis from several hundred years ago generated on our coast that arrived at at those different fishing villages. And we're able to reconstruct that the source was back in Oregon. So we know that can happen there. Um, Another place in the United States uh, that gets some attention are places like North Carolina and Charleston. And uh, in Louisiana, there's something called the New Madrid Fault, which is a place where the continent of North America started to break apart into two separate blocks of rock, two separate plates, but didn't quite make it. 
So there's an inherent weakness there. And every once in a while, over long periods that we don't understand well, there can be really large earthquakes. Um, the last set of really big earthquakes were in the 19th century. And there's a really interesting study reconstructing from the slow moving information um, in the newspapers there about the lead up to lots of small quakes and then really big quakes that caused things like a one mile shift in the Mississippi River because it actually ran, it was tilted up enough to run backwards and jump out of its channel and create a new channel. And some towns were abandoned as a result. So we know in areas like that, there can be really big quakes, but we don't see enough like small events to understand them well, the way we do in California. So, so that's the issue of this probability. Like, is there going to be a big event, right? How big could it be? How often does it occur? Um, the other big issue is the consequence. And the consequences are really different depending on where you look. So if you're on the West Coast in California, one of the good news is because we're sort of hyper aware of earthquakes, both through things like Hollywood and because we feel them, um, it's been easier to enforce building codes. And not only that, a lot of the major commercial development has occurred since the 1906 earthquake, right? And so there was a sort of sense that this is going to happen. We should be aware of this. This is in our living memory. And so in that region, the buildings are made to better react to earthquakes, to stay on foundations. So they're bolted to foundations, to be the right height so that when they sway, they sway out of phase with the earthquake. So, so if they sway in phase with the earthquake, every sway would send them further and further until they snap. But if they fit, they're out of phase, then they sometimes swing in opposition to the earthquake shaking and they damp back to a smaller sway, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So we have all this infrastructure in place. Um, big gas pipelines have automatic shutoff systems so that we can't have a huge fire the way there was in 1906. Where big gas, gas pipelines um, cross known faults, they're on skids. So if the earth shifts under them, uh, the pipeline stays intact. And so, for instance, in Alaska, for the Denali earthquake, which crossed the great uh, Alaskan oil pipeline, it shifted by, I want to say, was it nine feet or more? Not precisely certain that I remember the exact number, but the skids were in place because we planned for it and the pipeline didn't rupture, right? And so you had no spill. So this preparedness issue. Now, if you move away to places where earthquakes aren't as part, much a part of the culture or where society's development is older than our understanding of this, then you have huge problems. So the East Coast of the United States, the Central United States is where the potential consequence is larger because we lack preparedness, right? So again, risk is probability times consequence. So even though the probability is lower, the consequence could be bigger. Um, because of the potential destruction. There are other factors that go into this. Um, the East Coast is part of a really thick crust that's really old, billions of years old, and it's, it's relatively cold. And so you can think of this a little bit like a, like a gelatin. If you, had a, if you had a gelatin that was kind of warm and you shake it, uh, it wobbles, but little seismic waves will pass through it and they'll dissipate over short distances because it's so soft. And that's like the West Coast of the United States. The East Coast of the United States, you've had this thing in the freezer and you tap it just a little bit 
and it oscillates all the way through and it never dampens, right? And that's why we, when we have small earthquakes, magnitude four earthquakes, like, um, like we had uh, not that long ago that affected the Washington Monument, for instance, people feel these over a huge distance. And it's because it's this hard bell. So when you strike it at all, everyone hears it all the way around. And so there are other, these other geological factors that play into how the same magnitude earthquake will behave differently in different locations um, due to this underlying difference in the geology and the type of structure it is. Um, so those are some of the big factors that are at play. You've mentioned uh, a nine, and when we were talking before off the air, you mentioned nine a couple times yeah. uh, for magnitude. Is nine like what people in your line of work, that is catastrophic? That is the big one, quote unquote? Well, yeah. So so there's a whole separate scale that you may be aware of that's different than Richter scale, which is about the intensity and the damage. Uh, so we're talking about nines. Those are like the biggest... And the reason we talk about nines is because they're the biggest earthquakes recorded in the history where we've been observing and measuring uh, carefully. So that's really the 20th century where we have really good measurements. Um, so the biggest earthquake ever, I believe, was like around a nine and a half in southern Chile, ruptured a huge area of where uh, the Andes and Chile meet the Pacific Ocean and the plate that's being shoved underneath um, South America. Um, around the world, there have been other major magnitude 9 earthquakes, um, for instance, near Tohoku in Japan, or the new, near Sumatra that generated, both of which generated massive tsunamis. So the reason we tend to fixate on, on nines is not only are they destructive, but they're the biggest thing we've measured. And the nine is a measurement of that radiated, that, that amount of energy. Consequences, though, are... Uh, should be considered over a broader range. So although we might have nine on these subducting plates at, at what's called the ring of fire around the Pacific, where we have these really massive faults, the San Andreas fault, uh, which generated so much damage through San Francisco in 1906, well, that was in the magnitude sevens, right? So, you know, we, we should not fixate on the biggest one per se, because we need to think about these things like the consequences. So where are the population centers relative to these faults? What are the secondary consequences? Basically anything from magnitude five or above typically has the ability to do structural damage to infrastructure. Magnitude six and above can start to do substantial infrastructure. And in the magnitude five and six range, it's really about what the engineering is and what you've built on. Is it, is it a weak soil full of water that's going to start behaving like a liquid if you shake it? Or, um, or is it a hard rock? And, and, uh, and that has the effect. So that's controllable. And people then tend to worry about it a little bit less. Once you get into the sevens, you're talking about really significant destruction uh, or impacts, even with good engineering, but especially where the engineering practices slip. So for instance, uh, the North Anatolian Fault that runs through Turkey past Istanbul, okay? Um, it has a series of earthquakes. It behaves very much like the San Andreas. It'll produce earthquakes similar in size to the San Andreas, that magnitude seven range. 1906, magnitude seven, the earthquake hits San Francisco. It shakes the earth so hard that even granite tombstones 
get snapped and broken by the sudden whiplash. But the really big damage came from ruptured gas lines that produced the fire that came afterwards, right? So, so huge impacts. Now you take, take that earthquake, you put it into Istanbul, right? One of the bigger cities in the world with varied engineering practice because it's a very old city, but also because it's a, it's a growing developing city um, with variable enforcement. And then you give that same magnitude earthquake concentrated in that population. And the consequence is tremendously large potentially, probably larger than what some of the magnitude nines around the world, which we've seen happen uh, will be. So you mentioned the one that that affected the Washington Monument. And I remember one that I felt in Philadelphia. And I was mm-hmm. like where and I don't know if it was the same one or if it's too where if it was the same one, where was that centered? And is that an area of concern for us in the big picture? Right. So, um, you know, one of the things plate tectonics tells us is that there are certain zones in the earth that tend to concentrate earthquakes or where earthquakes occur more frequently. And they're, they're the weaknesses that we think about, but really earthquakes occur over a wide range. And I think on the East coast, the thing that we want to think about is, you know, what is the source of energy that's contributing to these earthquakes? And what do I need to understand about the geology that can sustain the earthquake? So right, earthquakes occur on faults and in the central and Eastern part of the United States, the rock is really, really old. And so every time it's everything it's been through over billions of years has accumulated breaks in it that provide the potential uh, to slip in an earthquake. Now, the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast is that there's all this strong rock around them and they're not being loaded and distorted very quickly because there's no nearby plate boundary that's, that's moving in a totally different direction like there is between the Pacific plate and the North American plate. And that tends to load things up really fast. On the East Coast, our loading comes from the fact that there used to be glaciers, you know, as much as a mile thick, uh, not very far from here. And they pressed down on the earth. And then over a few tens of thousands of years, they they started melting away. And then the, the weight of that being lifted has, is causing the earth to rise back up. Now, sort of like the different, like when you step out of a boat, the boat comes up. Um, the rock in the earth does the same way. It kind of floats on top of this plasticky uh, mantle underneath. You take that away and it, it, it bounces back. The thing that's interesting about that is that that rebound actually loads a really broad area. So unlike the plates where we're sort of narrowly focused, that rebounds loading a broad area and it can interact with any of the particular features that have accumulated uh, on the East Coast. Um, the two really the areas where we tend to see a little bit more seismicity because they appear to be potentially weaker are the area in, in North Carolina that runs through Charleston. Charleston had a very large earthquake in the mid 18th, uh, 19th century. And in, in West Virginia, there's a belt um, where there's some earthquakes. One of the things that's been happening more recently since the big energy boom is been the fact that we've been manipulating fluids in the crust at a large scale and in places where we didn't used to do that, like Ohio, Oklahoma. Um, and, and, and that manipulation of fluids is another way to pressurize these features uh, as the water percolates into them 
Um, fluids push on the walls of their container. And so when they percolate into a fault, they push on the walls of the fault and they affect its resistance to slip. And so now we're actually seeing earthquakes distributed in areas that have to do really with human impacts, like uh, in Eastern Ohio, where there was wastewater injection or in Oklahoma, where they, they, they re-inject waters that are co-produced with, with oil to, to dispose of them safely away from society in the one sense, because these are old, old waters that have lots of dissolved solids in them. But in the other sense, they're, they're pressurizing the, the volume that they're entering. So all we've talked about and all you have studied and you talked about risk and, and everything, is there an area that for, you know, to, to be cliche that keeps you up at night where the, the risk plus the activity plus the population uh, that it could really be a catastrophe if we get e not even a nine, but something significant. Yeah. So, so for better or worse, a lot of the places where people tend to live and think about where the people tend to congregate, they congregate near coasts, which also happen to be near a lot of plate boundaries. They congregate near mountains because there are different kinds of resources there. And typically those mountains are there because there are faults helping to build them. Um, so, so there are lots of places where really nearly the majority of the population of the earth lives next to really large faults and can be affected by them. I think the, the scariest places for me, um, which is a little bit biased by the kinds of work I've done in the past, right? We, we know what we know, we don't know what we don't know, are places like the North Anatolian Fault, because we have this concurrence of very large concentrated populations next to a very large fault with a relatively short recurrence interval. And the recurrence interval is sort of like the average time between major earthquakes. It's not really well understood because we usually don't have very many observations, but we, it's the kind of time scale on which we expect another earthquake of a certain magnitude to occur. Um, in Istanbul, that, that period is, is fairly short and we're, we're sort of in the time when, you know, give, this is geologic time. So give or take decades, like it's going to happen. And so that concurrence of large population, unprepared infrastructure, and expectation of a large fault, um, that, that, has, that has a worrying impact. In California, for instance, I think they're fairly well prepared. We're expecting um, there should be another big earthquake. The San Andreas is still doing its role along the plate boundary. Uh, the recurrence interval we tend to expect there is 150 to 165 years, give or take. These are averages like we don't know. Um, and California has a sort of different role, right? So the California case is um, the risk there is I think we can handle the risk to human population, we, we, they're protected. Um, some of the ramific bigger ramifications are commercial. And this is often true in the United States, right? Where we have a robust emergency response system. So if you think about California, right? It is by itself the fifth largest economy in the world. It provides significant food resources to the United States. Uh, it has some of the biggest ports that are affecting our, our transportations. So any disruption there has these rippling effects across the economy, uh, less in terms of direct human loss, but these also important economic impacts that affect human lives. 
there are a variety of factors there that that could be improved, but there's also this readiness and understanding that we should be paying attention there that I think is harder to, to, to do in the developing world. Um, that being said, you know, there are just lots of areas. We've seen the big earthquakes, uh, several uh, in, in Haiti, right? Also along a plate boundary with um, these subduction zone earthquakes. We've seen them, Indonesia, right? It, is is exposed to this, you know, one of the biggest democracies in the world. So there, there, there are a lot of places where we, we need to pay attention and be ready as a, as a global community to respond and help because it's going to happen. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.